you've termed anxiety as uh, like a rocking chair. Now, I thought this is a really interesting analogy. Can you explain what you mean by this? What I mean by that is it, it moves us emotionally. We spend a lot of time invested in it. We're really activated or paralyzed, but emotionally we're really moved by it. Clinical psychologist Anna Colton. Dr. Anna. Dr. Anna Colton, clinical psychologist. So when I think of it as a bully, it's, it's in contexts where it's not saving our lives, but it's inhibiting us because it sits in our head all the time, chucking out negative chat. Yes, we can say it's alerting us to danger, but on the other hand, undermining and it's denigrating and it's preventing us from living a full life. And the problem is the easiest way to think about them is anxiety is future focused, depression is more past focused and being in the present is, is wherever possible, the best place to be. If you curate your accounts and you are careful with who you follow, you can get some really, really great stuff. For example, when you said that, you said something so important. Self-sabotage can come from a whole range of different places, but usually you self-sabotage because... Hey there, friends. Welcome to the Happy Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew. Every Monday and Thursday, we like to talk health, well-being, self-improvement with a little bit of science thrown in for good measure every so often. If you're joining for the first time, you're most welcome. And indeed, you're very welcome if you're coming back for the fifth, tenth or even a hundredth time. Thank you so much for giving me some of your precious time again today. A reminder, we are on YouTube and on Instagram, if you want to check out the videos of these episodes, and you can subscribe over there too. And if you're getting value at all from tuning in, and there's been an awful lot of people tuning in in recent weeks, which is great to see, please do like, subscribe, share with at least one other person in your life who might get value from this series. And do leave the podcast a positive review, be it three, four, or even five stars if you believe that you're getting value from this series. I'm delighted to be joined by another great interviewee today. I'm chatting with Dr. Anna Colton. She is a clinical psychologist. We talk about anxiety and why Dr. Anna sees anxiety as a rocking chair, but also as a bully. We ask why people find it so difficult to deal with anxiety and speculate whether anxiety is tolerated because it is a familiar bedfellow Expect to learn about why we catastrophize when we know we shouldn't. We find out about the stop technique and how and when to use it. And we discuss the area of self-sabotage and ask why we might engage in it in the first place. You've termed anxiety as uh, like a rocking chair. Now, I thought this was a really interesting analogy. Can you explain what you mean by this? Yeah. So... um what I mean by that is it, it moves us emotionally. We spend a lot of time invested in it. We're really activated or paralyzed, but emotionally we're really moved by it. But just like a rocking chair, we spend all our time moving with it, but we don't travel. So, so we, don't, when. we don't go anywhere. It just sits with us, and... with us and it moves us and it stimulates us and it gives us the jitters and it, it you know, we become totally engaged with it um, and activated or deactivated by it, but we don't travel we don't go anywhere you know it's quite a static state now that is only when you get kind of caught by it and you don't use it because you can use it you can use it to say okay i feel quite anxious about this have i done everything that i can do to keep myself my family safe have i done everything that i can do 
to mitigate whatever I see that threat as being. And once you have done that, you say, is there anything else I can do? Or is this just to kind of my brain chucking out warnings that actually are not going to be helpful? And in that case, you can then do the things you need to do and it can activate you and it can motivate you. But when people really struggle with anxiety, they tend not to be motivated or activated by it. They tend to get stuck in it or with it. You have also termed anxiety a bully, but at the same time, we absolutely need some degree of anxiety, as you've alluded to there. Can you square these two? I, I haven't heard somebody call anxiety a bully before, so could you explain that? So, yes, for sure. And you're, before I go down that far, you're absolutely right. It is, a, it is a primal survival mechanism, right? But luckily... Certainly, you know, in, in the UK or in, in much of the, 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 the world today, we, we are lucky enough not to really need it as we did when we were uh, hunter-gatherers and hunting for our food. We don't need it in the same way. We still need it in times of proper threat. You know, if we are in a life-threatening, dangerous situation, my goodness, do we need it. You know, it's the thing that makes us jump off the road if we've drifted into the road and there's a car coming at speed and we don't have time to rationally process what's happening we suddenly find ourselves on the pavement with our heart pounding that is all the kind of the anxiety system it keeps us alive and it keeps us safe and we 100 percent need it however most of us don't need that level of anxiety most of the time we are really lucky so when i think of it as a bully it's it's in contexts where it's not saving our lives but it's inhibiting us and it's actually detracting from our lives and stopping us do the th- doing the things, stopping us from doing the things we want to do. And in those senses, it is like a bully because it sits in our head all the time, chucking out negative chat. Mustn't do that. This disaster is going to happen. Oh, no, 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 no. If you do that, then, you know, so and so won't like you or so and so will judge you or you're going to lose your job or you're not going to pass your exams. Well, this disaster is going to happen. Well, that catastrophe is coming. Ah, 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 ah. What if this? What if that? And so you have this constant, exhausting kind of denigrator. I don't think you're good enough or that's going to be bad or you've misjudged or you're going to misjudge. Whatever form one's anxiety takes, you know, in a social situation, for example, no, no, that person's not going to like you and that one's going to judge you and you mustn't go to that party and you mustn't go and talk to that person because what if, what if, what if. And in those situations, it's like, it, it works quite like a bully. Yes, we can say it's alerting us to danger, but on the other hand, it's undermining and it's denigrating and it's preventing us from living a full life. And the problem is, it because it lives in our heads, we can't, you know, walk away and change our company. We can't shut down the computer and stop the, stop the cyberspace. It is there 24 hours a day chatting away. And that's that's why I think sometimes people really find it a, ter- a, a kind of a, a way of seeing it that is really that really resonates for them. They find it a really useful metaphor. And it also then enables them to think, well, if it's a bully, what would I do with a bully? What strategies would that enable me to use that I might use in a different context? And, and that opens up a, a different way of dealing with You've touched upon a few different things, which I want to come back to at some point in the conversation. But I suppose my question then is, why is it so difficult for so many people to deal with their anxiety? Do you think people who suffer from anxiety, some people who suffer from anxiety, do so almost voluntarily in that it is the devil they know. It is a familiarity. It is a familiar state. And they would rather experience a suffering and a pain that's familiar to them instead of something that is unfamiliar to them which is a state of a lack of anxiety, for want of a better term. Or even just less. When you said that, you said something so important, which is that it's a familiar state. And if you think about, again, if we go back to evolutionary time, familiarity equates in the mind with safety. You know, the cave was safe 
It was familiar. It's where the tribe was. It's where protection, warmth, you know, uh, safety was. That was familiar. You went out onto the plane to hunt. It was unfamiliar territory. It was unsafe. You had to be vigilant for, t- for predators. You know, you were hunting and you were being hunted. So I think when you look at it like that, if, if we think that actually something that feels familiar feels safe, whether or not we like it, we can see why people gravitate towards something that feels familiar because we know it. It's known to us. And often most of us fear the unknown because the what ifs come crashing in. But but what if I what if I, you know, am less anxious and therefore I'm not paying enough attention to the danger around me and therefore something terrible happens and it's all my fault because I stopped being so anxious. What if? So those what ifs are really pernicious and they're pervasive. And when they come crashing in, you know, there's always a reason not to confront or not to challenge. It has to be so, because it's a really difficult thing to do. And what you need to do then, going back to the familiarity point, is if the anxiety is so familiar, bit by bit, when you're working with the anxiety, you need to make a state of lesser anxiety familiar so that it feels safe, whilst making the anxious state slightly less familiar, so it feels slightly less safe, Does that make sense. No, absolutely. So then, Extending on from that point, does self-sabotage come from the same desire to sit in a place that's familiar? Oh, you're asking all sorts of interesting questions so early in the morning. (laughs) Self-sabotage can come from a whole range of different places, but usually we self-sabotage because somewhere deep down we're really worried about if we do this and we don't succeed, what does it say about us? Or if we do this and we fail, what does that mean about us? Or what will happen to our relationships? Or what will happen to our, our work? So there's a kind of possibility that taking the risk is more threatening than not taking the risk. That makes sense, whatever it is we do. So, you know, there, there is often that kind of, you know, I see it with, when I work with um, young people and it's exam season and they go, oh, well, oh, I don't know. I just can't, I can't work. My mum's always on my case. So I don't know, I mean, I don't know why. And often it comes down to what well, I wonder whether if, you know, if you work really hard and then you take the exams and then the grades are poor, you don't have the excuse of, well, I didn't revise, so, you know, what could I expect? Much easier in many ways to have the excuse of, I didn't try, therefore the results are bad, rather than I put my all into it. The results are bad. What does that say about me? Am I not right? Or am I stupid? Or, well, you know, am I failing? So there is often that component of self-sabotage, but there are other things that can come into it too, but, but that is not uncommon, that one. Is self-sabotage at all related to people who retain a victim mindset, even though they're not what you would call a victim in the traditional sense, but they retain that mindset such that it gets them off the hook? It, it, uh, it relieves them of the responsibility maybe that they should actually possess at, at any given moment. So when you say a victim mindset, so it's what you mean specifically? Well, people, I suppose, who are put upon and they and they wear the mantle of a victim so that they don't have to take on responsibility. So sometimes people feel a victim, not because they don't have to take on responsibility, but, for, but you know, you, you never know what's in someone's past necessarily. And sometimes people have really struggled. And actually, there has been a lot of adversity. And that mindset comes from, well, you know, bad things do always happen. So I've got to expect bad things to happen. And and then if, if I expect bad things to happen, I can't feel bad. Um, that's, that's sometimes what's going on. Look, victim mindset, not taking responsibility, permissive thinking, there is always the possibility to relate them. Right. Um, but but I, I slightly rebel on the, on the victim mindset point because because I think most people do not enjoy, most people do not enjoy feeling bad. So, so if you're in that, oh, woe is me, everything always happens to me, 
you know, what there's a reason. And when we understand the reason, we can help someone move out of it. So I, I probably why I'm not giving you the answer, maybe you weren't hoping for, because I slightly think, well, it's like when people talk about, you know, attention seeking kids. And I think, well, if they're seeking attention, it's whether or not we would, would say they need the attention, they're somewhere feeling a lack of it. So they're seeking it because it's what they might need in that moment. And I applaud slightly the same. Um, when it comes to victim mindsets, although that said, it's it's not it's not you know necessarily a, a position I find myself terribly comfortable with. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I need to be able to help someone shift it to be able to work with it. If if someone is very wedded to it, then I I struggle personally. But if someone is very wedded to it, there is always a reason, right? Some there is a reason why that is the best position for that person to have in that moment. The reason why I brought up the term victim mindset was because I was chatting with a friend of mine yesterday who, when I told him that I was going to be speaking with you today, said, look, ask her about the the victim mindset because he works with somebody who always portrays or characterizes themselves as a, a victim and uh, to the annoyance of, of their work colleagues. So I was interested... <laughs> I was I was interested to hear your thoughts about what the origin of that status is because they seem to cling to that particular identity, uh, as I said, to the annoyance of the people who works with them. It's profoundly irritating, right? It is. It can be. I I am actually with your your friend there. I I, I find it very irritating. That's why I say I need to be able to help someone shift it to be able to continue working with it because it 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 does wind me up. But I would stay with my compassionate hat on. There is usually a reason and a purpose and a function to holding on to that victim mindset. So the, the, the key would be, you know, what is the function of, of, of maintaining that state? What does it do for you that you feel won't, you can't get without it? Why is it the best state when it winds everyone up and irritates them? Why is it still functional? And I think when you approach it, maybe with that bit of curiosity, it becomes, doesn't become less frustrating, but it becomes slightly easier to think. Because actually, when you're frustrated, you can't think, can you? So, you know, if you're so, if you're driven mad by some something or somebody, very hard to think your way through it. Whereas, if you can be curious about why why is this successful for you, why is this effective for you, everybody is irritated. You know, why is it a good place for you to be? What's it doing for you? It's slightly easier. I'll pass on that message then to yeah. one, to my friend. Be more empathetic and and uh, be more no, curious. I didn't, I didn't say empathetic. I just said curious about why it works. If I can ask you in your experience, how often is it the case that anxiety stems from a lack of purpose, a lack of meaning and uncertainty in general? Uncertainty for sure. You know, really, really frequently. People really like certainty. It makes them feel safe, right? And a lack of certainty can make people feel destabilized. Only the thing is that there's nothing that's certain in life because you never know what's around the corner. So the only thing that is certain is uncertainty. At least that's, that's my belief. So I think we really have to get comfortable with uncertainty um, because however certain you think your arrangement is or however certain you think your plan is, you know, you can go down with COVID later tonight or something else can happen or something else can happen. So even when you think everything is certain and beautifully planned and beautifully scripted and laid out and organised, you have no idea, really. So so for me, I think uncertainty is really common and, and deeply and very closely um related to anxiety. Uh, lack of purpose, I think, is something quite different um, to uncertainty. They can, of course, be interlinked, but a lack of purpose and a lack of focus can lead to anxiety. I think it often, more often, will lead to low mood. Um, and again, with low mood, anxiety can creep in. But I, but I would say that the uncertainty is the, is the biggest link there. And what advice would you have then 
to help people deal with that uncertainty, it's, I, I suppose, an awareness of it. And would it be advisable then to be constantly reminding yourself that nothing is concrete, nothing is for sure, and, um, and, and living, I suppose, in the moment rather than living in a, a what-if kind of scenario? So anxiety lives predominant in the future. You can't be anxious about what's happening right in this moment because this moment is, is happening though it's past. So even if the future is two or three minutes down the line, anxiety can only survive in the future. That's why all of the kind of practices like meditation and mindfulness really focus on the present for anxiety. If that's a, a if that's a um, a practice you resonate with, you enjoy, the, one of the benefits is it keeps you or tries to get you grounded in the present rather than focusing on the future. The other, of course, disadvantage of focusing on the future is you miss all the good stuff that happens in your present. Depression is more linked to the past, not entirely, but but the easiest way to think about them is anxiety is future focused. Depression is more past focused. Being in the present is is wherever possible the best place to be. I'm glad you mentioned grounding. I know you're a fan of it. Physically lying down and and taking your shoes off and actually touching the floor or the ground. And I suppose meditation, which you also mentioned, meditation is the mental version of grounding too. Yeah, and I think I think it's important also to know that. The reason so many professionals and non-professionals and yoga teachers and everybody who works in the anxiety space or in the mental health space talks about meditation and mindfulness is because there's an awful lot of scientific evidence to show that it actually changes our physiological state. It's not just some kind of, oh yeah, well, you know, take 10 minutes and kind of go, ooh. It, it changes the physiological state. So those people who meditate regularly have a, have a, have a, a slightly slower heartbeat. They're able to bring their heart rate down and of course, also when your heart rate drops, you become less anxious because it's communication with the brain that you're safe because when you're anxious, your heart rate rises. So there's lots of physiology in um, meditation in particular. That That is extremely effective with dealing with anxiety in particular. But yes, it also grounds you. It brings you into the present moment. It makes you feel connected with your body. One of the things, again, when we get very anxious, we can dissociate. We kind of feel out of body. So connecting back in with our body and into our body is a really important alternate process and something that makes us feel grounded. It's why I quite like all, as you mentioned, you know, the, the quite concrete strategies of sitting on the floor actually connect with the ground. You know, you don't have to do everything mentally. Connect, feel it, touch it, engage your senses, really feel yourself rooted, you know, use a bit of compression to go, I'm actually, yep, no, I can't push through this floor. I am properly touching the floor, touching the wall, touching the desk, whatever it may be. I am grounded in myself in this space with this floor, this wall, or this chair, or whatever it is, rather than that kind of frightening feeling of being out of body and in the future and in your head and not quite connected. A few minutes ago, you briefly alluded to media and social media. I just wanted to ask you, what contributory factor does social media play in the context of people who are already experiencing a, a great degree of anxiety, and if I can just say about myself, I have actually logged off Twitter in recent weeks simply because it's such a negative and toxic stream and it was, I, I think, affecting my own mood. So uh, could you just give me your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think I should say before I launch into all the negatives of social media that there are some, some really, you, you know, if you curate your accounts and you are careful with who you follow, you can get some really, really great stuff. For example, there are some excellent psychologists putting out excellent, robust information that can be super helpful, particularly in the climate when it's hard to access help. I want to be a little bit balanced and say that you, you know, you can find really good stuff out there. But of course, 
one of the issues is that we'll find something and, and often it's the negative stuff that engages us because the reason we become hooked on a thought or the reason we become hooked watching something is often because it activates us emotionally. There's lots of emotional content and often it's negative emotional content. So we end up watching stuff that makes us worried or makes us low. And then we kind of scroll and then we seek to validate. And then the algorithm chucks out more of the same at us. And suddenly we are down the black hole of content that is really detrimental to our mental health. I think, like like you say on Twitter um, or, or on any of these accounts, it's unbelievably easy to become polarized. It's really easy to read comments and feel very distressed about the state of the world or to feel very distressed about something you feel passionate about that other people are denigrating. It is really easy. For as, for as much as it's wonderful to be able to say you can always find your people nowadays because there's always someone who is your person somewhere in the world on social media, you have to be so careful and really so savvy and protective of yourself and only really follow and interact with, with people you feel are, are helpful, interesting, whatever you need to get and give. So I think it can be really difficult. Also, there's, of course, the stuff where much of the... Um, it used to be Instagram that, that was met the main culprit for this, but you know, things are changing. But it's so easy to forget that people curate their content and say you are getting best versions of everything or potentially worse, depending on what the content is, but you're getting best versions. And so if, if you're into social comparisons, of course, everybody else's life looks amazing and sunny and joyful and they look their very best. That is not what they look like when they roll out of bed a bus for in the morning feeling terrible or when they've had a row or when they're low. So content is so cute. I think people are more aware of this as certainly as, as you know, kids are growing up with more and more social media. I think that is being talked more, but it is still hard when you get sucked into it, isn't it? To remember that what you're watching is somebody's, you know, 500th take. No, exactly. I completely agree. And I, I also agree that there are some terrific social media accounts out there and there is an awful lot of wisdom, but you have to, as you say, curate your feed. That's an external dialogue. If we can talk about an internal dialogue, how do we go about curating that internal chatter, which can at times uh, be quite catastrophic and catastrophize things and really lower our mood? How do we deal with negative self-talk? It's a really good question. Actually, it, it reminded me of uh, something you asked earlier, which just left my brain again, <laughs> which was was around exactly this. What is the worst thing you can do? You ask something like, you know, what, what helps, what doesn't. And one of the worst things we can do is try and get rid of it without being thoughtful. So when we try and get rid of self-talk and just go, oh, you know, I've got to get rid of that. It's really uncomfortable. I hate it. Or I feel stupid. And we're just pushing it down. We're not we're not actually acknowledging it. We're trying to kind of shut the box. And we have to work really hard to get rid of feelings. Like we can't really get rid of feelings. What we have to learn to do instead is surf them. A bit like going surfing in the sea, urge surfing or thought surfing, whatever you want to call it. And so you can notice it and you can go, oh, yep, that's, 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 you know, that's me speaking very negatively about myself. You have to catch it first. You have to, I mean, step one is noticing you're doing it, right? So if you don't notice you're doing it, there's not much you can do about it. You'll get sucked in and you'll, you'll keep doing it. But once you notice, then every time you, you, you do it, hopefully you'll catch yourself. The more you catch yourself, the more you'll notice, the more you notice, the more you catch yourself. So it becomes a virtuous spiral in terms of that. And then you can say, oh, in a minute, let me pause. Let me just pause. And if you want, you can go down. There are lots of different ways to do it and what works for people is different, right? But one of the ways is you can challenge it. You can say, is this, is this thought actually right? Is it? You know, let me just go through the factors. Am I a complete waste of space? 
well, let me see. Actually, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've gone to work, or I've, you know, I met this deadline, or I had a great time at a party, or I actually know not a waste of space. So you can become, you know, you can challenge it that way. You can you can go with the the kind of number one rule in, in psychology. A thought is just a thought. Just because you think something doesn't mean it's true. And that sounds so straightforward, and it is the reality. It's hard to hold on to, but it is true. Just because you think something doesn't mean it's true. We have thousands and thousands of thoughts every day. We only hold on to the ones or notice the ones that are loaded with negative emotional content usually. And and so they're the ones that suck us in and that we pay more attention to. Whereas actually, they're just a thought like anything else, you know. While we've been talking, you'll have had lots of thoughts that you haven't articulated that have come into your head and gone out of your head about all sorts of things probably. That's that's normal, but we don't notice and we don't get hooked. So, you know, the good old, it's just a thought, not a fact. That's really useful. And then learning, okay, look, there's that thought again. Okay, do I want to engage or shall I just surf until, you know, do something else, notice it's there, sit with it, and just like a wave, the peak of it will rise and then it'll fall because you can't stay at that heightened, even though it, people might feel anxious or distressed all the time, actually, even if it's a, a minimal change, it, it peaks and it, it it swells and it falls and it swells and it falls. And it's it, the analogy is one of waves in the sea, you know. And you can't stop the waves in the sea if you stand at the front of the sea and you go, right, I'm not going to allow any of these waves to break onto the shore. You're not going to be very successful. And indeed, the more you stand there trying to stop the waves, the more likely you are to be taken out by the waves. If you imagine that you're a surfer, you wait for the wave. When it comes, you jump on it, you surf it. And as it comes down, you surf down. You're much less likely to be knocked over by the wave. And that is the same with emotions and 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 thoughts. But the thoughts tend to lead to emotions. It's why we don't like them. That When we talk about negative thoughts, it's because it makes us feel bad. You know, a negative thought that comes in and goes out, we don't mind. It just kind of passes through. So if you can think of that surfing analogy and go, I'm just going to ride it. I'm going to you know, read my book or call a friend or distract myself or just notice it's there, but not necessarily engage with it and know that it'll, the, the way I feel about myself will change. That's a really great way to do it as well. And I know you're a fan of not just sitting with your emotion, but actually feeling how it's expressed in the body. Can you talk to me about this? Yeah, I, I am a fan. I am about that. I think that our body and our mind, of course, I, I don't. I don't well, I differentiate, but I don't think there's a mind and there's a body and they're two separate entities. I think that's called a thinking factor is is waning. Um, but we feel anxiety is a really good um, demonstration of this. When we feel anxious, we have loads of physical symptoms, right? Heart rate, you know, we get palpitations, we get hot, we get sweaty, some people get cold, you feel a bit sick, you might get an upset stomach, lump in your throat, you might cry, you might hyperventilate, loads of physical symptoms. Understanding that they are caused by the adrenaline that's running around our system is really helpful, right? Because you can go, okay, my, you know, I'm obviously my brain is sending out adrenaline. I'm not dying, or you know, this is a normal response. This is an anxiety response, and you can learn to understand it, and you can learn to recognize it, and you can learn to be curious about it rather than panic or feel distressed about it. Similarly, if you feel very angry, understanding what it does in your body. You know, we, we have a lot of physiology when we're angry and also when we're joyful, we have quite a lot of physiology. So to pretend that these are just emotional states with no bodily component means that we're trying to kind of disconnect mind and body and we're missing out on a huge amount of information. Whatever you do with that information is a whole different conversation. But when you can tune into what you're feeling physically, at the same time, you've got lots of information about how you are and where you are and whether you're grounded or whether, you know, I wasn't thinking I was anxious, but actually, you know, 
I've suddenly got all of these symptoms. Let me be curious. Let me notice that. There's some information there that could be useful to me. What's happening? At what point in the anxiety cycle do you advise deploying a technique, which I know you're very, very much a proponent of, and that is the stop technique? Can you talk? Yeah, early. As early as possible is, is, is the answer because stop technique is really quick and simple. Now, you need to get it. So to use it effectively, I would say you, you need to get it quite, quite, you need to be quite early in that anxiety cycle. But what it is, and you can use it with thoughts, is when you notice that that thought coming in that's going to put you down the spiral, you just go, stop, not interested. Stop, no, stop, not interested. Literally, that's what it is. You can visualize a kind of a red stop sign at the traffic lights or whatever it might be. And you just say, no, nope, I'm not going down that path. And what that does, it won't stop the thought coming in, right? The thought might come in again, but it'll stop you spiraling down the whole cycle to the catastrophe at the end of it. You just go, actually, no, not engaging, stop. And the thoughts will come again, stop. And if you practice it, excuse me, if you practice it, you'll notice that the, the gaps in between or the gaps between when you have to say stop, how many times you say stop, get bigger and bigger and bigger. So you might have to say stop 60 times in your first hour, but if you keep practicing it over time, they'll just be using it less. You go, oh, there it is again, stop. Yeah. And it'll go for much longer. It's about intervening rather than getting hooked. If you um, imagine you go fishing when you, you put the bait in on the end of the, the fishing line. I'm not a fisher, by the way, so if I get a small rod, you can pull me up on it. But you put bait on the end of your hook, you cast your, your, your line, the hook goes in the water, and you hope that the fish takes the bait because when they take the bait, the hook will go and, and catch them and they will be. And it's exactly the same. The bait is kind of the negative thought. Our, our mind throws out the bait. It's the negative thought. And then it goes fishing and we go, it's that negative thought. And we catch it and we become hooked. And, and a bit like the fish on the end of the fish hook, we're suddenly totally engaged and caught with that thought. And the key is, is to kind of unhook and go, hang on a minute, how do I unhook from this? One, I can just say stop, which is stop technique. Stop, no, stop, no, I'm not engaging. I'm not going to go down that path now. But there are other ways to do it as well and say, okay, well, uh, I'm going to distance myself. I'm going to kind of become less fused. I'm going to become more of an observer rather than in it. I'm going to observe it. I'm going to take a step back. There are loads. I mean, it is difficult. <laughs> there are so many techniques I could kind of throw out at this moment, but but the, the key is not to deny the thought or the feeling because then you spend your time having to push it away. And it's a bit like when a child knocks at the door. If you open the door first time and say, what do you, uh, what do you, what do you need? <laughs> and they tell you, you can attend or you cannot attend. But if you don't open the door, they'll keep knocking and keep knocking and keep knocking louder and louder and more and more insistently until they just come in. And that's exactly the same. And that's understandable. I'm not, there's nothing wrong with that. It's normal. And that's exactly the same. If you try and suppress and just get rid of your thoughts and feelings, it's a bit like that they'll knock. They'll knock again and come on, pay attention to me. Knock louder and louder and louder until well, actually you're at the one point or place you're in a meeting or you're at a party and you find yourself overwhelmed. And that is the last place you want to be thinking or feeling whatever it is. And it's because you spent your time trying to get rid of it. So the key is not to ignore it, but the key is to notice it and try and become less hooked by it. Fabulous. So much great advice. Uh, Dr. Anna Colton, if people want to find out more about you and reach out to you, where can they go? Um, so I'm at Dr. Anna Colton on Instagram and TikTok and LinkedIn. And if you put me into Google, you'll find me there too. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, it's such an early hour this morning. Really enjoyed our conversation. Dr. Ada Colton, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Happy Habit Podcast. 
If you're enjoying tuning in, if you're getting any value at all or any benefit from these episodes, please like, subscribe, share. Do leave the podcast a positive review. And remember, we are also on YouTube if you want to subscribe to us over there also. Until next time, stay happy. Mm-hmm.